when it's all said and done, the direction of your life, whether or not you live in the light of truth or continue to walk in the darkness wrought by sin, wrought by rebellion, the direction of your life, it really does boil down to one thing, your position concerning Jesus. One thing. Your position concerning Jesus dictates so much else. And since your position concerning Christ is so vitally important, following the parables in Mark chapter 4, Mark continues his narrative forward by giving us three stories that should help shape, form, develop your view of Jesus. Truly, actions do speak louder. Last Sunday we noticed that Jesus addressed the disciples' lack of faith in his word. They were on the Sea of Galilee, and a mighty storm, a great tempest arose to the point that the disciples thought they were going to go down with the ship. They come and they wake Jesus. They have a lack of faith. Jesus rises, he rebukes the wind and the waves, he brings about an immediate calm to the storm, and in the aftermath of an amazing miracle, Jesus demonstrating power over the very forces of nature, Jesus sowing his word into the wind and the seas and bringing calm, in the midst of that, in the aftermath, the disciples are left standing there. They were afraid of the storm, but Mark tells us that they were exceedingly afraid after Jesus perform the way he had. And they turned to one another, and they asked themselves a very important question. This is where we left off last Sunday. They asked themselves, what manner of man is this? Well, they were about to find out, because we're told in verse 1 of chapter 5, that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, Luke tells us that he was stark naked. He had been dwelling in the tombs. And no one, we're told, could bind him. Not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but the chains had been pulled off, been pulled apart, the shackles broken in pieces, and neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, and cutting himself with stones. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he worshipped Christ, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out, entered the swine. There were about 2,000 and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now let's begin with our scene of activity because there's a lot of things going on in these verses. We're told, very specifically by Mark, then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. Jesus and his disciples are traveling across the Sea of Galilee when this incredible storm, as we looked at last week, arose. Jesus rebukes the storm, and they continue their travels across the sea to the other side, which Mark tells us was the land, the country of the Gadarenes. It was a Gentile area known as Gadara. When Jesus told the disciples originally to board the boat to set sail to the other side, I don't believe the other side at that moment would have initially been Gadara. And let me explain. There is no way that if Jesus had told the disciples, we're going to sail to the other side of the sea, and the disciples knew that the other side was Gadara, that they would have capitulated, that they would have gone with the flow without putting up some kind of an opposition. No good 
kosher Jew would have dared traveled in a Gentile area without voicing some kind of an objection of which we have no record. Now, with that in mind, there's a question that comes to my mind. I think that's interesting and has implications for us. Did the storm, if Gadara wasn't the other side when they set sail, did the storm knock them off the intended course, or was the storm intentionally used by Jesus to establish the directed course? If on the shore, when Jesus said, we're going to go to the other side, if the other side was some other place but Gadara, and they ended up in Gadara, did the storm knock them off course? I believe that the storm didn't redirect them away from the original intended destination, but was rather used by Jesus to direct them towards the intended destination. And think about the implications of this. Often as a, it's, well, it's not an uncommon perspective, but when we encounter a storm in our lives, whether it's a storm of obedience or a storm of disobedience, when we encounter a storm, it's not uncommon for us in the midst of the storm, while the waves are crashing and the wind is howling and the rain is beating down, it's not uncommon for us to think, for the seed, the thought to enter our minds that maybe the storm will cause irrevocable damage to the destination God has for me. Sometimes we see storms and we're left thinking that this storm, well, it might not ruin God's plan for my life. It might not ruin what God could do moving forward, but it definitely has redirected it. That this was not the intended destination and I guess God will just have to use it in a way that I don't know. But you know, I think our story here tells us something different about the way that God uses storms. This story, it demonstrates that God uses storms to get us where he wants us to be. Gadara, I don't think, was the other side when they set sail, but Jesus used the storm to get them exactly where he wanted them to be. And often in, in our lives, we might think we have a destination. We might think that God wants to use our lives and set a course in a certain way. We might have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. We might have this idea, this fanciful understanding of what God might want to do in me and through me, what his plan, his will is for my life. And a storm arises, we lose our bearings, we, we have to have faith, we have to trust the Lord, but even as we exit the storm and we don't really know where we are, and we show up at Gadir, and we're thinking, what in the world? This wasn't the destination, when in actuality, it always was. You see, we not only have to trust the Lord with the storm, but we have to trust what the Lord wants to accomplish through the storm. God often uses storms to set our course, not redirect them. And so they arrived in Gadara. And as soon as Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This butt-naked man comes running out of the tombs, down to the beach. Jesus is getting out of the boat. Now, understand the disciples, and this scene for me is funny. The disciples are already freaked out by what had happened on the trip across the Sea of Galilee. A storm, they're freaked out, they saw Jesus just speak and everything was calm and the wind stopped and they're on nerves, like they're on edge, their nerves are on edge. They get to the shore, they're just like, thank goodness we're here, there's land. The guys, I can see them tying up the boat, Jesus is getting out and then out of nowhere, this demon-possessed, naked man comes running out of the woods, down the beach, towards them. I can see them going into like crisis uh, protection mode. Like they're Jesus's bodyguards. They're thinking, we just left a storm and now this? Are you kidding me? Can we not just have a break? Like I could see the scene unfolding and Jesus has this calm. I mean, think about it. If Gadara had been Jesus's destination all along, the encounter with this demoniac was not an accident. As a matter of fact, I think it was premeditated. As they come up to the shore, 
as they're unloading onto the beach, as this man comes running down, as the disciples die for cover, set up a protective shield around Jesus, Jesus is seeing this coming all along, that this is exactly where he wanted to be. Jesus intentionally had commanded the disciples to cross the sea because he had an intervention scheduled for this man. And I love the context of this. Now, before we continue into the the, the narrative, we should take a moment and work up a description of the man from what we gather from the scripture. First, we know that this man was a demoniac. He was possessed, Mark tells us, with an unclean spirit, a demon. We don't know and aren't told how this man came to be possessed. We don't know when or at what age the possession occurred. We don't know what his life might have looked at before the possession took place. When Jesus asked the demon what his name is, we're told that the demon responded that his name was Legion, for we are many. We can surmise that he was not just possessed by one demon, but was possessed by possibly even thousands of demons. Now Luke tells us, This man had been possessed for a long time. We don't know much, but this was not early into the possession. At this point in this man's life, his psyche, his mental faculties had become so and completely dominated by the demons that were possessing him. Whether it was a conscious thing or an unconscious thing, this man had completely yielded himself to the forces of evil, to this darkness and he had become a prisoner in his own mind. It is quite sad and tragic. So he was a demoniac. Secondly, he was shunned by society. This man was an outcast in every sense of the word. Mark says he came out of the tombs, which he includes were his dwelling. So he lived in the tombs. Now it's clear that the demon, that his possession had robbed this gentleman of all meaningful relationships. These dark forces had driven out any positive influences that could have existed. His friends had abandoned him. His family had abandoned him. Society had shunned him. He was alone. We're also told that he was uncontrollable and insane. Mark says that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but in the end, no one could bind him or tame him. Whether he had been bound in an attempt to provide him aid or simply with the intention of protecting others from the man, no human scheme, no human device brought this man help or brought relief to an otherwise horrible and dark and depressive situation. We're also told that he was violent and, interestingly enough, that his strength seemed to be superhuman. Mark says that the chains that they had bound him in, that this man had the strength to pull them apart and the shackles had been broken in pieces. And the only other mention in the Bible of strength like this, we find in the Old Testament uh, in a prophet named Samson. Samson, too, had been bound in shackles and chains and had been able, and with superhuman strength, to pull down the pillars and thus kill the Philistines. We see that superhuman strength, physical strength, can be imparted by the Holy Spirit. We see that in the life of Samson. It seems from this story that demon possession also can yield superhuman physical strength, that the strength had been imparted to him by the demons that possessed him. Matthew's account of our story paints the picture even more extreme than Luke or Mark. He tells us that man was so exceedingly fierce that no one could pass through this area. We're also told that the man was self-destructive. Mark says that he was crying out, literally shrieking and cutting himself with stones. What a bummer to live near that neighborhood, right? And you have this demon-possessed man shrieking out all the time, this blood-curdling yell out in the darkness, out from the tombs. He was cutting himself. The language used here describes a man that was in such 
mental and emotional anguish that very possibly his psyche battling with the possession of all of these demons yielded such psychological effects that the only release the man could have was by inflicting physical pain and torment upon himself. Back to our scene. Mark tells us this this man, this man, this demoniac, this violent and self-destructive man, he saw Jesus from afar and he ran and he worshipped him. Jesus is possibly not even out of the boat as the scene is unfolding. Seeing the man running, the disciples in defense mode, Jesus stops the man in his tracks and he says, come out of the man. It's powerful. Now the demons respond, crying out with a loud voice, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore, or literally, I beg you by God that you do not torment me. And then the demons continue their dialogue with Jesus by begging him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. But instead, they suggest that Jesus send them into the swine. So we're told at once, Jesus gave them permission. The unclean spirits went out of the man. They entered the swine, the 2,000 swine. The herd ran violently down the steep place off a cliff into the sea, drowned. It's radical. It's kind of trippy, truthfully. Now, before we explore the significance of the story itself... There are two questions concerning demons and demon possession that we should address. Now, understand, we're going to get into something here a little trippy. We're going to get into something here, by the way, that I don't want to derail an otherwise great story. But if we're examining Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I think it would be wrong for me to skip over some obvious issues that we should address concerning demon possession and demons. The first question I want us to consider, and I don't know if you've thought about this, why did the demons in this story so adamantly beg Jesus to be cast into the swine when the demon we saw in Mark chapter 1 didn't make such a request? In essence, why do we see in Scripture Jesus encounters some demon possession. He casts out the demon. The demon doesn't even put up a fight, but just leaves. Whereas in this situation, the demons are so freaked out, are so adamant that they need some kind of dwelling that they ask that Jesus cast them into the swine. What's the difference between the demons we see in Mark 1 and the demons we see here? Now, in order to answer this effectively... We should keep in mind five quick points concerning demons. First, demons were originally angels. We're told that they were created by God as members of the angelic host. Scripture tells us, however, that when Satan rebelled against God, and you can read about his rebellion in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that one-third of the angelic host sided with Satan in his insurrection and also fell from heaven, Revelation chapter uh, chapter 12. These fallen angels, who were created to serve the will and purposes of God, joining in the rebellion of Satan, now serve the will and purposes of Lucifer. So first, demons were originally angels, and now they serve the purposes of Satan. Secondly, hell, hell was created for Satan and the demons. We know this according to Matthew chapter 25. The demons in this story, they beg Jesus not to torment them. Matthew adds, before the time. I believe that these demons feared that Jesus would send them to judgment prematurely. The third thing we should note concerning demons is that as former angelic beings, I believe demons have the ability to take the form of human beings. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're told to not forget to entertain strangers. Why? For in doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. We know angels have the ability to take human form. When I was in high school, I was making my way to church, ran out of gas, in the turn lane to a gas station. It was miserable. 
And I had, 16 years old, I had a 1972 Malibu Classic. It was a boat on wheels. And the thing was heavy as lead. And so here I am, and I'm like 50 yards from the gas station. It's bone dry, run out of gas. I open the door, and I'm going to try to like, there's no power steering. I'm going to try to push this vehicle and steer the steering wheel all at the same time. Wasn't going to happen. Out of nowhere, this guy comes walking up, big burly guy with a big beard. He says, hey, you run out of gas? I said, yeah. He goes, he goes let me help you. And so I'm still standing there at the door, and he comes around back, and he's like, just hop in, I'll push. I'm like, okay. So I jump in the car, and the guy starts pushing. We start rolling. I'm, you know, pulling that steering wheel as hard as I can to get in. I'm looking in my rearview mirror. There he is, just going to town. Come rolling into the, uh, into the, uh, the spot right there to fill up my tank right at the gas station pump. I get out. Gonna see if I can offer the guy a few bucks or something. He's gone. Just totally gone. Now, whether it was an angel or not, who knows? But at the same time, in Hebrews, we're told to be careful interacting with strangers because some, without knowing it, have done what? Have entertained angels. So we know that angels have the ability to take actual human form. Thus, I think it's easy for us to conclude, as former angelic beings, that demons also have this ability. This all ties together, follow me. The fourth thing, demon possession is a tool used by Satan to insult and mock God and his creation. I mean, really, when you look at what Satan had done to this man in our story, a man, you should note, had been created in the image and likeness of God. That what Satan had done how this man was uncontrollable, untainable, naked, living in tombs, social outcast, that what Satan had done, had wrought, had brought in this man's life, it made a mockery. It made a ridicule of God's creation. Never forget that Satan is in the business of destroying and he's in the business of defaming what God has created, mainly destroying the lives of men and women God desires to redeem and set free. The intention, by the way, of these demons in this man's life was to kill him, was to destroy him. We see this, that when Jesus cast them out of the man into the swine, that the swine can't handle the possession and thus lose their mind, run off a cliff into the sea, and they're destroyed, they're ruined. So demon possession is a tool used by Satan to insult and mock God and his creation. Now, Scripture seems to describe three categories of demons. Truthfully, this is where things begin to get trippy. So just plow through this with me. It begins, now I hear that. First, there are demons that are free to roam the earth without restriction. It seems as though Mark chapter 1 gives us an example of this. A man that was demon-possessed, following Jesus' sermon in the synagogue, jumps up, makes a scene. Jesus says, get out, and the, man, the man's liberated. The demon gets out but that there are demons that have no restriction, that roam the earth, tempt, test, inflict damage, no restrictions. It also seems that there are demons that are held in captivity and are reserved for judgment. Now, we're not going to turn there, but in Jude verse 6, we're told there are demons that are bound with everlasting chains. Now, these, to the best of our understanding, are fallen angels who rebelled against the wishes of God in an additional way from simply joining in Satan's rebellion. That in addition to falling with Satan, have done something else to require restriction. That have required they be bound with everlasting chains. Now, the question is, what did they do to deserve an early judgment? Now, some scholars believe that in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God saw the daughters of man and took wives for themselves, that what's being described here is a demonic, satanic plot to destroy the human gene pool. For what purpose? Don't forget, in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, God told Satan that his ultimate destruction would be that the seed of the woman would crush his head 
that God would become flesh and dwell among us and save us from our sins. So if you're Satan and you understand that God will become flesh, will become a human being, then the best way to thwart that plan would be to ruin the genetic gene pool. In doing so, some believe that demons took the form of human beings, we know they have that, that ability to, came into the daughters of men or had sexual relations with human women, producing kind of a half-man, half-demon individual. Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis simply described this, that there were giants dwelling in the land. Now, why bring all this up? Well, what's believed is that there's third category of demon is also a byproduct of the events of chapter, chapter 6 of the book of Genesis. That these half-demon, half-human being individuals, when the flood came and destroyed all of humanity, destroying these giants dwelling on the land, that the demon part, the human part died, drowned, but the demon part remained alive. And at least it's a theory, it's an explanation that it was those demons that following this destruction craved flesh and blood. They craved possession, that they needed a biological dwelling. Now, once again, we can't say for certain, this is just a theory. But we do see a third category of demon. We see that there are demons free to roam the earth without restriction. We see that there are demons held in captivity, reserved for judgment. Very possibly the demons that committed this act, this sexual act, that God punished them by reserving them for judgment. But then we see this third category, demons who need a biological dwelling, thus the demons we find here. Jesus goes to cast them out and they beg not to be cast out, but to be cast into something else. It seems to be different, and at least this provides us an explanation. I told you that might get, might get a little trippy. The second question we should ask, and this is more relevant for us this morning, is who then can be possessed? Now, my answer might surprise you. Who can be possessed? I think everyone can be possessed either by an unclean spirit or by the Spirit of God. Now understand, for the believer possessed, experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to be possessed by a demon. The Christian can't be possessed, can be oppressed, but not possessed. In 1 John chapter 4, we, we're reassured that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In 2 Corinthians uh, 6, we're told, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness, what fellowship has Christ with Belial? In James 4, verse 7, we're admonished to resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, there is no way you can be possessed by a demon. However, for those who aren't, possessed with the Holy Spirit, there are no guarantees. Now, there is an unrelated question that we should address before we dive back into our story. Why does Mark, here in chapter 5, mention one man, one demon-possessed man, when, as the student of Scripture might note, Matthew's account mentions two? Matthew's clear that there are two men that come out of the tombs, Mark says there are one. So what about this apparent contradiction? I believe the answer here is simple. According to Matthew, Jesus indeed cast out demons from both of these two men. Matthew's clear on it. Mark is clear that one of the two men made a decision after being liberated from the demons to follow Jesus. We can imply and infer that the other man didn't make this decision to follow Jesus after the exorcism. Matthew records no further details after the demons are cast out. Mark, though, focuses narrative on whom? The man liberated that chose to follow Jesus. And so, Mark makes an omission because his focus is on the man who followed Jesus, not on the man that didn't. Matthew just addresses the fact that Jesus cast demons out of both men. 
understand, and this is a good rule of thumb when it comes to certain quote-unquote contradictions in Scripture, an omission is not a contradiction. And that's important. Well, verse 14, so those who fed the swine, they fled. They're freaked out. And they go into the city and they tell it to everyone in the country. So these people, they all come out to see what took place. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the one who had been demon-possessed, who had had the legion, he was sitting. And he was clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed. And about the swine. And so these people... They pled with Jesus to depart from their region. Now you have to ask why. You have to ask why. And the presence of such an amazing, awesome miracle. I mean, a work of God that was undeniable. Why in the presence of this? Something they could see for themselves, something tangible. Would they prefer in a unanimous sense, that Jesus depart, that Jesus leave, that Jesus wasn't welcome, when you would have concluded the more logical explanation would be stay, continue to work, continue. Why? Now, there are probably three logical conclusions that you can surmise as to the logic here. First, could it have been greed? There are those who believe the hostility that was shown towards Jesus was directly connected to the reality that Jesus had just sent a herd of swine off a cliff into the sea. You can imagine that losing the profit on a herd of 2,000 pigs would have been a significant loss. You might say that someone lost a lot of bacon that day. Okay, it was a cheesy joke. It was my best attempt. At least I didn't do what every other pastor did with this passage to say that this is the first reference of deviled ham, which is a horrible joke. Someone lost some money. And I'm sure that wasn't exactly a very pleasing thing to that person. And so could it have been their greed? Like even in the presence that, that in, in casting the demons into the swine and losing the profit that this man's life had been saved, that they cared more about their dollar, the budget, than they did liberating this man, saving a life. It could have been greed. It could have been conviction. You have to think, what were a herd of swine doing in Israel to start with? Now, it's true that Gadara, the area of the Gadarenes, was a Gentile, heavily Gentile population. And pigs, swine, were often used in pagan sacrifices. It could be that this herd of swine had the direct purpose and intention of being offered uh, to the pagan gods. But the area was also known to be a safe haven for apostate Jews. These were Jews that had rejected the God of their forefathers, had embraced paganism and pagan religion and culture, and were living in direct defiance to the will and purposes of God. Either way, whether it was just Jesus making a point about the false gods of the land, or he was making a point to the apostasy that these Jews were living in, either way, if they weren't going to respond to the conviction Jesus had brought into the situation then who likes Jesus hanging around? Like, if Jesus is around and I feel convicted over my sin, but I'm not going to do anything about my sin, then I don't really want Jesus hanging around. Same with us, by the way. If you have friends that are pagans and your life and the presence of their life brings about a conviction that you kind of illuminate and illustrate a contrast, but they are stubborn, guess what they'll do? They'll ask you to leave. Could it have been conviction? Could have been. The third thing is, could it have been misinformation? Don't forget, 
Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we noted that one of the attack ads, one of the lies that the religious establishment had been circulating about Jesus and the origin of his power had been that he had been given power from Satan. Could it have been that in the presence of this miracle, that these Gadarenes had simply believed the lie, had failed to seek the truth, had found it easier to just be indifferent than to take a position, regardless of the reason? Isn't it true, and an equally sad truth, that some people today, they witness God transform the life of a person they know. They see someone come to Jesus and see a transformation brought about through that encounter with Christ. And they react in a similar way, using similar, similar logic. I know people that have rejected Jesus out of greed. They have feared that following Jesus, accepting Jesus, might end up costing them things that they just hold too dear. That if they were to really sell out for Christ, that they would lose in the end. Sometimes it's greed. Sometimes it's conviction. I mean, who really likes feeling convicted all the time if I have no intention on changing my behavior? Sometimes people reject Jesus out of conviction. Sometimes people reject Jesus simply because it's easier to go along with their preconceived prejudices than actually examine the truth with an open mind, with a possibility that maybe they were wrong. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Either way, whether it was greed or conviction or misinformation, the one inescapable and unavoidable reality we learn from this story is that when we ask Jesus to move on, he obliges. He doesn't put up a fight. He'll honor our wishes and he'll simply move on. We're told. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begs Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends, go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and they marveled. The first observation we have to make here is consider the power and the compassion of Jesus' word. I don't know if you noticed, three times in this scripture, we find this man called, referred to, his name is he who had been demon-possessed. Do you notice that as a common occurrence? And he who had been demon-possessed, and he who had been demon-possessed, he who had been demon-possessed, who had been demon-possessed. Isn't that a glorious truth that we can also be known as those who had been lost in our sin, as those who had been blinded in our rebellion, who had been in the bondage of sin and rebellion, who had been. I love the past tense. You can't help but notice the incredible transformation that took place in this man's life following his encounter with Jesus. In one day, in one moment, in one exchange, he goes from being an uncontrollable, insane, naked madman possessed by a legion of demons to a man freed from possession, liberated from affliction, clothed, under control, in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. What a contrast. Once again, we're giving a stark illustration as to the power of Jesus' word. But you know, it's also the compassion we find within Jesus. This was a man I'm sure everyone had written off as a lost cause that everyone had probably concluded, now that's a guy that's out of the reach of God. That that guy is too far gone. That that guy, by his choices, 
has yielded irrevocable damage to what God could do moving forward. Everyone would have looked at that man and seen a lost cause. Everyone but Jesus. Jesus didn't care where the man had come from, what the man had done, but Jesus saw not who the man was, but who the man could become and the power of Jesus. And he speaks and he works. He doesn't run, but he embraces the compassion of Jesus. Mark tells us that as Jesus boards the boat to head back to the sea, to cross the Sea of Galilee, that this man begged Jesus that he might be with him, but Jesus didn't permit him. Now, do you find that odd? I find that very odd. Like, how often is it that someone comes to Jesus and like, Jesus, I just want to hang out with you. I just want to be where you are. I, like, can I just get in the boat and go with you? I just want to hang, man. And Jesus is like, no. Like, it's a really odd exchange. The man's begging Jesus. I want to learn. I want to grow. And I want to know. I want to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to sit at your feet, Jesus, as a disciple. I want to follow you. And Jesus is like, no. I'm not going to permit you. Now, my second observation is consider this, this man's commission, the particulars of this man's commission. Understand that Jesus never sends us out before making sure we're ready to go. Don't assume, and, and this is a mistake I think some people make, that by this exchange, by the fact that Jesus did not permit this man to come with him, that in some way, in some way, this man wasn't a genuine disciple of Jesus. That Jesus could somehow read through what was happening and could see something else within the man and was like, no, you don't need to go. I'm not going to permit you. That in some way, it was like evidence that what had happened in his life wasn't genuine. And I think that misses the point. Truthfully, I think our situation reveals that that man, the man who had been demon-possessed, may have been in this moment more of a genuine disciple than the 12 men sitting in the boat who were wearing the name tag, disciple. It's clear from our text that Jesus, all Jesus was doing here, by not permitting him to come into the boat. All Jesus was doing was expediting the man's commission. He tells him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus would not have sent this man out with this commission if the man wasn't ready. I think the reason that the disciples were in the boat is because like, they needed another year of preparation before Jesus would do what? Give them the exact same commission. I go to prepare a place for you. Where I go, you can't go. I'm not going to permit you to go. And instead, I want you to go home, Jerusalem, share the gospel, and then go out into Judea, Samaria, take it to the ends of the earth. You see, the commission that Jesus gave this man is the commission that Jesus would later give the disciples and all men. I can't permit you to go where I'm going. Not yet. But instead, I've got a job for you to do. Think about it. This man, he, he received the commission with, with no complaint. He didn't argue. We're told he simply departed. And he began to proclaim all that Jesus had done for him in Decapolis. Decapolis were 10 Greek cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the most northern of which was the city of Damascus. You know, some people, some people speculate and wonder how the church could have grown so quickly in Damascus to the point that the, who would later be known as the Apostle Paul, Saul, in dealing with the church in Jerusalem would have to go so quickly to Damascus. Could it have been that it was because of this man and his influence? He goes to Decapolis and he tells the people everything that Jesus had done for him and they marvel. Good trivia question for you. Who was the first missionary commissioned and sent out by Jesus? Was it the 12 apostles? Nope. Was it Peter? 
Was it the Apostle Paul or Barnabas? No. As a matter of fact, the first missionary journey we don't find in the book of Acts. The first missionary was the man who had been demon-possessed, sent and equipped. Which leads me to my second point. Jesus sends us to the location of our greatest influence. He sends us to the location of our greatest influence. Jesus tells the man, go home. Go home. How long had it been since he had been home? How long had it been since he had hung out with his friends, had talked with them? Witnessing. We have made a tragic mistake in our Christian culture and how we've warped the idea of witnessing. Please note that witnessing is not something that you go out and do. Witnessing is not going door to door. It's not going to some other country and handing out tracts. It's not standing on the street corner, hearkening the judgment of God. Witnessing. Witnessing is not something you go out and do, but rather it's something you go out and are. You are a witness. A witness of what? A witness of the transformative power of an encounter with Jesus and the growth of his word. Witnessing is not a name tag we can take on and we can take off. We're always a witness of Jesus. The question, are we being a good witness or a bad one? It's easy to see why this man's ministry was going to be more powerful around the people who knew him best. These were people who had seen the elements that led up to the possession. These were the people who had seen the effects of the possession. These were people who had seen and had been hurt by his uncontrollable rage or his violence. These were people who knew what this man's life looked like before Jesus. All too well did they know. And by that they had context. Because when he came back, he was not the man they had known. It was not the man they had knew. It was someone new, someone who had been born again, someone who had been liberated. They could contrast this man's life in Christ by what his life looked like apart from Christ. This is why Jesus tells him to go home and to his friends, that Jesus sends us to the location of greatest influence. Understand that the first place to shine your light is with those who have shared your darkness. It is a stark reality. The evidence is undeniable. If we're to be a witness, go home and begin with your friends. The third thing that we gather from this, and this is where we'll close this morning, Jesus. Jesus never sends us out before making sure we're ready to go. The only reason he sent this man to the capitalist is because he was ready. Secondly, Jesus sends us to the location of our greatest influence where we can truly be a witness. But Jesus, he equips us before he sends us, but with what? With a story. With a story. Jesus tells this man to go out and tell them the great things that Jesus had done for him. I find this to be encouraging. This man's theology was minutes old. Like, not enough time to read through a welcome to the family of God track. He knew nothing. Probably had no exposure to the scriptures or the things of God. Didn't have a hermeneutic or a systematic theology. Did that limit his mission? No. Did Jesus tell him, go to Bible college first? Get all your theological T's crossed and I's dotted and then go? No. 
his doctrinal knowledge, his ability to answer theological questions, it was minuscule. But what had he been equipped with? He had been equipped with something much more powerful than theology, which is good, and much more powerful than Bible knowledge, which is helpful. He had been equipped with a story of how Jesus had changed his life. You know, you can get into arguments with all kinds of theological matters with people. But how does someone argue when you just sit down and you tell them, listen, this is how Jesus changed my life? Like, you can't argue with that. And if you do, you're a jerk. Like, really? You might consider that person to be insane or not, but if you go out with a story, there's power there. This is not the last guy to go out with a story. You know, the Apostle Paul, who is the most brilliant doctrinal mind that has ever existed, who knew the Old Testament probably better than any other person to have ever existed, who had all of his systematic theology buttoned down, who could reason and argue and go toe-to-toe with any other thinker in his day. The Apostle Paul found it prudent in more instances than not to tell his story, to say how he was the arch enemy of Christ and had rejected Jesus and was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church when he encountered Jesus Christ and his life had been changed forever as a consequence. You're to be a witness, not in what you go out and say or what you go out and do, but who you are. But understand that the most powerful thing Jesus has equipped you with is a story of what he's done for you. This man could go and say, I'm the one who had been demon-possessed. And the people would look and say, wow. That you can go and be a witness to be a light in your home and around your friends to tell your story. I guess the most relevant question to leave you with this morning is do you have a story? Have you encountered Jesus? Has Jesus spoken into your life and radically changed you from the inside out forever? How do people know you? As the one who had been or as the one currently? This morning, Jesus desires to encounter you. You can come up with excuses why to send him on his way, and he'll oblige. But this morning, we all have a choice. We all have a decision. And so, Father, with that, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you say to us.